Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource for Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and today we have another installment of our mailbag feature. We'll take uh, listener-submitted questions, frequently asked questions, and on today's episode of the mailbag, I have with me friend, colleague, Ronnie Kurtz. Uh, Ronnie serves as director of marketing. Branding? <laughs> what are you, brother? <laughs> yeah, I, I serve as the marketing and social media manager here there at Midwestern. There you go, social media manager. Uh, it's like me. I, when I tell people I'm director of content strategy, the first question is, that's awesome. What is that? Exactly. Yeah, so it's just one of those things. Uh, Ronnie is also a Ph.D. student here at Midwestern, and he's one of the pastors at Emmaus Church in North Kansas City. I brought him on because we're going to be doing a little bit of theology, and I wanted to have a real theologian with me <laughs> while we discuss some of these um, issues. So let's just jump right in, shall we? Uh, the first question that we have is, is something that was kicked up, oh, several weeks ago on social media uh, by the time this episode airs, about uh, Judah Smith, who is a pastor in, in the Northwest area, a celebrity pastor, pastor to Justin Bieber, I think, or somebody like that. And uh, he put out a, a, a tweet, an ad for their new app, for the church's app called Church Ohm. Church Ohm? Church Ohm? <laughs> There's only one H in it, so it That's looks right. like Church Ohm. Church Ohm Global. And it's something that you use on your phone. And, um, yeah, I, I responded to the ad and um, got a mixture of amens and how dare yous. And so I thought we would talk about it. Um, the main thing that I had a problem with in the advertising was it was predicated on the idea of church planting. So in, in his tweet, uh, Smith says, we always, you know, we're always asked, when are we going to plant a church in Boston or Nashville? Well, now we have introducing the Church Home Global phone app. Now, obviously, I have some issues with this um, because I even defended it for a couple of days. Um, but I do want to First of all, say what I'm not against, right? Ronnie, are you against churches having an app? I'm not. Yeah. So I mean, you're not like, you know, a Luddite anti-technology or anything Absolutely like not. that. <laughs> I, I hope not as the social media That's manager. Right. Yeah. It'd be hard to do my job. <laughs> That's right. So my stance is that churches should have zero to do with technology whatsoever. <laughs> you shouldn't even be listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. So if, if that was your response, um, I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. Um, my complaint or my concern, I guess I should say, it's not that churches don't have apps. People were saying, hey, look, there's you know disabled people, shut-ins, that what have you, uh, who can't get to church physically. Um, I think that's a great reason to have um, you know media that's available, whether live streaming of your service or what have you. Um, for people who are, who are even traveling, you know, if you're not able to visit a church while you're away or even in addition to visiting a church, but you want to stay somewhat connected to your home church, you know, churches who broadcast their services on Facebook or live streaming on their website, all those sorts of things. So it's not about having an app. It's not about wanting to connect already connected people or people who are providentially hindered from being uh, physically connected to the spiritual content of the church. My beef was that we're calling it church planting. Go to church on your phone. There's even a lobby on, on here where you can have a tactile experience. I'm not sure if how tactile goes with the virtual experience. I think we're kind of mixing our uh, our definitions here. But what would you say, Ronnie, like if somebody were to say to you, hey, what's wrong with going to church on your phone? What would you say to that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I did appreciate your response, Jared. I thought it was uh, a good and, and timely response there on social media. 
And I think there's a lot to say to this, and I think you're right. If this was being couched as, hey, if you can't come to service, here's a supplement to help you watch what you missed right. in the expectation that you typically come to service, that's not necessarily a problem at all. But even on, even on the marketing for it, which I obviously pay attention to, uh, they're saying a new approach to church. And I, I do very much so have a problem with that. And I think that this, honestly, to speak frankly, is a is downstream from the lack of focus on ecclesiology yeah. as a theological category in evangelicalism for so long. Now we have uh, great thinkers who are, who are helping remedy that problem now and things like nine marks and what have you. But still, it's an, it's an ecclesial problem thinking that we can do church this way. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's a low view of church membership. It's a low view of Baptist polity. It's, it's a low view of ecclesiology, honestly. And if you look at Scripture, you look at the New Testament, you see things like uh, not, not forsaking the gathering of the saints in Hebrews and also in the book of Hebrews, things, uh, charges given to one another like see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Well, that comes with it a lot. If I am charged to see to it that you don't fail to obtain the grace of God, that likely means me walking in valleys with you. That likely means me being in uh, your life re- repeatedly and, and, and walking and, and applying the gospel into situations in your life. And it just seems very hard to me that that would happen. Uh, it's hard for me to believe that, that could happen digitally. And not only is it hard to believe that it could happen, my, my question ends up being, why would you even want it to happen? Right. Uh, the balm that the local church is to my wife and I is so sweet. The thought of replacing their physical presence in my living room with meeting in a digital lobby right. is absurd to me, even from a practical standpoint. Yeah. Um, I think for me, beyond that, right, so the question that you're hitting on is primarily what is the church? You know, what is it? And for me, the concern is another extension of things uh, related. I, I don't think um, this is near as egregious as going to church on your phone, but the video venue uh, mm-hmm. phenomenon for me, I have a concern. I don't think it's sinful, but I just think it's unwise in an age where church has become a consumer product, right? So w- w- our ecclesiology is so shallow that it, it, it's simply about providing spiritual resources for your personal growth or whatever it is, inspiration, personal development, even your relationship with Jesus, you know, to use that language, all things which are in and of themselves good and yet detached from ecclesiology, from mm-hmm. the life of the local church, are completely foreign to the New Testament. Just the idea that, hey, you just need the information. How you get it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. This is about your solo pursuit of self-actualization or, you know, religious actualization or what have you. So to me, the bigger concern is um, about treating the church like a consumer product. That's right. And if the church is just a consumer product, then it doesn't really even matter if you come or not, right? I mean, for me, like, I've always wondered, what's the next step for video preaching? Is it video music? Well, we're mm-hmm. not quite there yet, but why aren't we there yet? Mm-hmm. Why do we prefer music to be live than preaching? Because, well, preaching is is sort of a, um, you know, like a feature or an amenity. We're really there for the emotional experience type mm-hmm. of thing. And... Um, I guess we might could say musicians are easier to come by than good preachers. I don't know if that's <laughs> how they think or what have you. 
Um, but it reminds me, there's a scene in the movie, you probably haven't seen it. I know you're a movie buff, but this is from the 80s, Real Genius. You ever see Real no, Genius? No, I haven't. Val Kilmer and uh, the guy who played Uncle Rico, he's in there. I don't remember <laughs> his name. But Val Kilmer's in it. It's, it came out probably like 85, 86. And uh, one of my favorite scenes is in the beginning, it takes place on a college campus, like an MIT type um, campus. This kid goes to class. And um, he notices that all the students have tape recorders because they're, like, recording the lectures or what have you. And then it progresses throughout the movie. He comes back to class, and there's no students there. There's just tape recorders and all the seats. He's the only one president <laughs> of the class. And then when that the, towards the end of the movie, he finally shows up, and it's a climactic day. And not only are there, you know, tape recorders in every seat to record the lecture, the lecture is a tape player. With the, <laughs> so he's literally the only embodied person. Yeah. In the room. Well, that's what I mean. It makes me think of the modern church growth movement. Is this essentially your embodiment is is an important? Mm. It's not necessary because the aim of it is personal fulfillment. Mm. All right, let's transition um, because I think it's I think these are connected questions, or they may not seem like it on the surface. Um, let's talk about this unhitching from the Old Testament <laughs> thing. By the time you guys hear this, by the time this episode drops, which I think will be early January, this will be um, somewhat old news. It's you know Al Mohler has, has done a briefing mm-hmm. um, episode on this. Um, Owen Strand with the City of God podcast has done an episode on this. I think having uh, Dr. Mohler as a guest, I believe. Um, lots of hot takes, lots mm-hmm. of blog posts. Um, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I think for our audience, it's important to to speak to this issue because it's related, in my estimation, not just theologically to your sense of biblical theology and what have you, uh, your hermeneutics, but also what you think the church is and what you think the church is for. Hmm. Maybe we can get there. Why would Andy Stanley say, first of all, let's, let's just try to understand him, why would he say we need to unhitch hmm. uh, our Christianity, I believe is the phrase, unhitch our Christianity from the Old Testament. Why do you think he would uh, – why do you think he thinks that's okay to do? Yeah, I like this question because it's it's an attempt to read him fairly, yeah. which I think we should we should all do as Christian brothers. And to, to add to your list of resources that have addressed this topic, uh, uh, Jared, you didn't mention your own, uh, your, your, your post on TGC about the nagging questions from unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament was, was very helpful – Another professor here at Midwestern, uh, Rustin Umstadt, has responded to some of these issues, and I thought he did a wonderful job. And then I thought Michael Kruger, who also responded on TGC, did a great job. And I think what Dr. Kruger did that was so helpful was he did try to read Andy Stanley graciously. And again, I think that that's our duty as as Christian thinkers. And we've heard a lot of comparison to between Andy Stanley and the early church movement of, of Marcionism or Marcion himself right. who yeah, you know, didn't think that the Old Testament should be part of the Christian canon. And um, even more than that, he also wanted to get rid of some of and omit some of the New Testament as well. That sounded Old Testament-esque. And we, we've seen this comparison with Andy Stanley and, and, and Marcionism. And, and I do think there is a sense in which it's fair. What Andy Stanley is saying at least smells like Marcionism. But Dr. Kruger pointed out that it's not necessarily the same thing uh, given that Marcion's problems were ontological with the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, and the difference that seems to be there. Whereas what Andy Stanley seems to be getting at is a hermeneutical reality where he reads the dichotomy so strongly between the Old 
in the new covenant and the fulfillment of the old covenant in the new, especially seen in the Christological fulfillment of Jesus, such that he reads that so strongly that every old covenant uh, expectation, commandment has been fulfilled in a Christological sense. Yeah. So I think that that would be a charitable reading of Andy Stanley. I do think it's – I do think he's taken a terminatic too far and I think there's some pretty serious theological problems as you and others have pointed out. But I do think that that's what he's trying to do. Yeah. You know, one of the things that sort of made my jaw drop in the, in the book was – so it, what a lot of this has built up to and is coming out of is his most recent book, which is called Irresistible. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is recapturing what made the early church so magnetic, what have you. Um, I think it's sort of a separate issue, but I think sometimes we we misunderstand. Um, we, we have this sort of uh, golden age vision of what the early church w- mm. was and what they did and, mm-hmm. and what have you. Um, but the idea is that this is in some way attractive, right? So this is connected to um, the larger question of what he thinks the mission of the church is, uh, what apologetics is for. Uh, one quote in the book that just made my jaw drop was, uh, you don't need to obey the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even, you know, sort of like double downs, you know, <laughs> on that to say, like, you didn't mishear me. You don't need to obey the Ten Commandments. Um, I, I just find it fascinating um, as well as distressing. Like, w- where is it coming from? Um, here's another quote from some of his teaching material coming out of this book. Um, this is a pull quote from him. This is not me pulling this out of context. He has pulled this out of context or out of his context to showcase the quote. He says, when you anchor the authority of your teaching to the Bible, you reinforce an assumption that has the potential to weaken mm-hmm. rather than establish faith. Let me read that again. When you anchor the authority of your teaching to the Bible, you reinforce an assumption that has the potential to weaken rather than establish faith. Now, why does he think this is the case, that if you anchor your authority to the Bible, it actually hurts people rather than helps them? And I think it goes back to things that he has said in relation to the church service, which is why I wanted to kind of connect this to the Church Home Global app. What is the church? Because he has said other things in other venues, like we will go Sundays without getting to the Bible. And um, when you're trying to reach lost people, they don't see the Bible as authoritative. Uh, It's not compelling to them um, because their standards of authority have changed. We're in a different era, that sort of thing. Um, Obviously, um, there are a great number of people who see no problem with that whatsoever. It's got a big church, and in in that vein, the proof is in the pudding, I suppose. Um, Why is this as big a concern as the as or or bigger, I think, um, than the church home global, you know, app as church planting? Um, The idea of treating the church um, as in a new age, a new era Mm -hmm. of Christian mission in which the authority of the Bible is ineffective uh, or ineffectual, insufficient, um, what have you. What is he saying about church, do you think? Yeah, I think that's that's so important for us to think about, especially what you're bringing up here in terms of authority because this is – we have heard this before and – and a number of different methods of apologetics is what what is our authority you know if we if we come with the scripture to the non-believer well that's a non-starter they're not going to respect that that starting place and and if we say that you know we we start with the bible's authority because the bible declares its own authority 
then obviously the, the charge of circular reasoning gets brought up, and rightly so. That is circular reasoning. However, I think as Christians, uh, we, w- we would do well to, to learn from, from theologians like Cornelius Van Til and Herman Bovink who would just accept that, uh, embrace the circular reasoning, and, and realize that actually all of us, and when we talk about epistemology or the theory of knowledge, we all have circular reasoning. Uh, for instance, if, if, if a uh, non-believing atheist can come up to you, Jared, and says, you know what, I'm going to convince you with science that, that Christianity is not true. And you say, okay, go ahead. Well, if they go anywhere else other than science, they've usurped the authority of science as, as the foundation of, of their epistemology. Mm. So if we say, non-believer, the Bible is our authority, and I'm going to prove that to you with history. Well, we've now usurped the Bible's role as our authoritative foundation. Or if mm. we say, the Bible is authoritative, and I will prove that to you via science. Yeah. Again, we've usurped the Bible's power as the authoritative. So what we say is, yeah, the Bible attests to its own authority, and we're okay with that because all epistemology has to have has to have a starting point, and ours happens to be the special revelation of God and His inerrant, inspired Word, and that will be our starting point. Yeah. And so now that we've established a starting point, we now have a criteria to measure Christian faithfulness, including church services, mm-hmm. of what we're going to allow in, what we're not going to allow in. We have an authoritative source. Uh, in in the in the Word of God that we can make decisions about our our services. Yeah, you know the reason I connect you know connect this to church services is because of the attractional paradigm, uh, which Stanley is one of the leading proponents of, if not the leading proponent of it today. You know we used to look at guys like Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, what have you, and um, you know Warren and Saddleback Church, of course, are still going strong, but. As just a producer of content, an mm-hmm. influencer of aspiring leaders, um, aspire, you know, aspiring attractional pastors, um, Stanley really has kind of risen above right. a lot of them just in terms of his you know, production of content and that sort of thing and I think his influence as well. So there's probably more churches that are trying to do the North Point thing, which is where Stanley's pastor, um, than other kinds of churches today. Um, but what I find fascinating is just – the persistent, the pervasive um, thinking or the conception of church and a church service as the place where individuals come to get their individual religious experience. And if if that's true, so just like the church on global, um, it's church's consumer product. Mm. You know, how do we pitch this? How do we manage it? And it goes to what you're talking about in terms of authority. Who's the authority if it's not the Bible? Well, it's the consumer. It's the in this case, the seeker, if we can call him that, or whoever it is, the person who's trying to be convinced or the person that we want to be convinced, I guess I should say. Um, they're the ones who sets the authority. Um, but you also see, to me, it's almost like, uh, I don't know if it's smoke and mirrors or some kind of rhetorical flourish because what they will say, what Stanley will say is that you shouldn't say the Bible says such and such. Say Paul says, mm. et cetera. But all you got to do is just one step you know, deeper for the skeptic or the person you're speaking to to say, well, where does Paul say that? Yeah. Well, that's actually in the Bible. So, I mean, <laughs> you're still referring to the Bible. So, you know, I don't want to be too hard on them if they're just talking about, you know, the vernacular. If yeah. they're just saying the phrase, the Bible says, um, you know, I'm not quite there. I understand it a little bit more. But to me, it's just one step backwards in trying to um, make it less embarrassing mm-hmm. Um, and also just forgetting that the Bible is um, effective. It is living and active. The Word of God 
um, is, is, is sharp and penetrating. It, it creates sp- supernatural reality. The Holy Spirit, working through the words that he has inspired, um, is actually sufficient. And so there's all kinds of theological issues that are tangled up in this, but I think ecclesiological issues as well. All right, let's take a break and hear from our host at Midwestern Seminary. And when we come back, we're going to talk about another social media scrum and a couple other uh, reader-submitted questions. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others, your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu. Okay, we're back. We're involved in another installment of the mailbag feature of the For the Church podcast. I have Ronnie Kurtz with me. Ronnie Kurtz is a pastor here in the North Kansas City area, one of my colleagues here also at Midwestern Seminary, and a Ph.D. student, which is why he uses words like epistemology and what have you. Uh, For you, the ordinary person, keep your dictionary handy for this episode of the (laughs) podcast. Uh, All right, let's do something a little um, lighter, and then we're going to move on to the uh, Diana Butler Bass, uh, Jesus Isn't a King sort of thing. Um, we'll move on to that in a moment. Um, listener Brent writes, and Brent was very um, concerned I didn't respond to his email right away. I said we, were, we would answer this on the <laughs> podcast, and he sent me two emails, so he's really interested in my response to this question. Brent says, on a recent episode of the podcast, you said, you meaning me, Jared, uh, that the way small groups are currently conducted in evangelical churches is a boondoggle. <laughs> There's another word. You got epistemology on this episode and you got boondoggle. That's right. Uh, can you explain? Uh, yeah, I'll explain. And it's, it's really not that complicated. For me, um, what I see is a lot of churches who u- using the idea of a small group program to create community that their um, you know, vision of church or paradigm of church isn't facilitating. And so I'll just get a little biographical here or autobiographical. Um, I, I remember it was a lar- you know, part of a large church, tractional church, for almost 10 years. And we tried like three or four different variations of small group programs. So you have like at its peak, we had about 4,000 people coming. And um, you got a lot of people. You want them to be in a relationship with each other. And so we tried – different variations of, you know, small groups, um, community groups, whatever you want to call them. And none of them worked. You know, you had some people who'd be interested, but they just, they never quite took off. And there was, so, there was always this like troubleshooting. Um, you know, why don't people want to know each other? Why aren't people engaged in a community with each other? That sort of thing. And so we did, you know, the traditional going through book studies type thing. Well, nobody was interested in that. So then we tried a um, demographic, right? So this is the singles group and this is the marrieds group and this is – and nobody would really would you know be interested in that, at least not enough to make it a viable program. So then we, we scrapped that, went back to the drawing board. We tried affinity groups, right? So now um, if you're interested in softball, this, you know, go play <laughs> softball. That's a small group. You know, whatever it is, hobbies. There was a drum circle, uh, that, which is just bizarre to me. Um, yeah. And uh, – and it just didn't work. Well, when you're, you know, smack dab in the middle of it, you can't quite figure out why don't people care? You know, well, why aren't, you know, we're, we're creating the program. Well, the problem, first of all, is that you're expecting the program to create the desire for the program. 
um, which is rarely the case, right? So if you um, – and this is connected to what we discussed before the break. If you're creating or if your primary message um, through the church service, right, which is the, the primary place where you are um, cultivating people's desires, right, if you are fostering them um, or inculcating them further into their own individualistic, consumeristic Christian experience, why would you expect them to want to be in relationship with other people? They may have that innate desire, but you're just over and over again reinforcing that Christianity is just about the solo pursuit of self-fulfillment. Then you create a small group program and you wonder why they're not interested. Well, you're not fostering or cultivating mm-hmm. a desire for those one another's, right? Um, church's consumer product is terrible at creating community, which is why now we're doing these virtual community things yeah. like the apps and and what have you. And so when I say um, small groups as they're currently conducted is a boondoggle, I don't mean every – like you shouldn't have small groups or every church who does small groups is doing them wrong. Um, I just think by and large many times it's a program that we – like we know this is a need or should happen. And so we just create a structure without actually feeding the vine upon which the structure um, would grow. And so I think a lot of the ways that churches do them is just program-driven, and they're not actually cultivating uh, relationality. So uh, I want to get Ronnie involved, so I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next question. <laughs> I don't know if he could explain why I thought small groups are a boondoggle, but uh, we'll move on to our next question here, um, which he is very well positioned to answer. And it's something that I get asked a lot, especially as I travel and speak. Guys want to come up to me and talk to me about the seminary. Um, they have questions um, about degree programs and what have you. But this is a very common question. Should a pastor get a Ph.D.? And yeah. if so, why? R- Ronnie, you're a pastor. You're getting a Ph.D. Should other pastors consider this? And if so, how come? Yeah, this is this is a such a good question and, and one that I do get a lot. And uh, being that I am a pastor at Emmaus Church and I am a, a Ph.D. student here at Midwestern Seminary. And uh, so let me just biographical as well for just a second. Uh, for me, this was kind of a no-brainer choice. And, and the reason I say that is because I – I feel like I live a bit of a hybrid life in that I love the pursuit of academic theology. I I love writing. I love reading. Uh, I can't get enough of theological dialogue. But I also really treasure God's people. And I don't mean that to sound like a cliche or sound cute or what have you, but I, I truly do love being with God's people. I love leading the church. I love preaching for the church. I love counseling. I love all those things that pastors should love. And and so I've kind of resolved that I'm not going to choose between the two, uh, between the academy and the local church. Hmm. And as long as I can keep those worlds together, I'm going to pursue that. And so doing a PhD in systematic theology at an institution that's for the church was kind of a no-brainer for me. And uh, it just it was what I saw as the next step to keep these worlds together. Now, should other people do that is an interesting question. I simultaneously believe there are probably too many people doing PhDs that shouldn't be doing them and not enough people doing PhDs <laughs> that should be doing them. Okay. And, uh, and I, I think that, that I can have that make sense in that PhDs are hard and there's a reason that they're respected in, in, in our culture and to get one takes a lot of work. And so if, if you're not ready for that or, or cut out for that, then I would be aware. However – I think this is going off of our last uh, question, Jared, that we're so steeped in pragmatism as Americans and living 
in the culture we live in, the time we live in, the question seems to be regarding a PhD program, will this help my church mm-hmm. or how will this help my church? Yeah. And typically they're expecting a pragmatic answer. This is going to help your church X, Y, Z way. Uh, you're going to see growth this way. And I, I, I don't think that's a bad question. I think a better question is, is what are we doing when we do a PhD? When we, when we talk about a doctorate in theology, what's happening? And I, I think it's inevitable if you pursue a PhD at a good, solid institution. If this isn't happening, you should probably find a different institution. But I think what's inevitable if you do a PhD at a good institution is you will have your view, your picture of God enlarged. You will have a grander vision of God and his gospel and what he's up to. And I can't think of a more practical thing for a pastor to have than a grander vision of God than he currently does. Uh, for for pastors to have their view of, of God and his gospel refined and clarified, in my mind, will only lead to the benefit of the people that he's leading. And so the question of should you do a PhD, uh, I'd probably answer that not knowing all the listeners personally uh, with this, maybe. I, I'm, okay. really, I'm really <laughs> for PhDs in the pulpit, and I encourage yeah. that. And I think church history has a lot to teach us here. It's just that when you look at things like the Reformation and that the men who were carrying those out, the women who were carrying those out were church leaders. Yeah. And a lot, of, a, lot of those, a lot of those guys in the Reformation were pastors. And I, so I think there's a lot for us to learn here. Um, so I, I think if you're interested in theology, if you have the means to do it and, and you can get to Midwestern Seminary, then you should do it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there, we didn't used to draw a distinction between a pastor and a theologian exactly. or a pastor and a scholar. Pastors were expected to be scholars in some sense. Um, and even just the idea of the pastor's study, right? I mean, we used to expect our pastors That's right. to be theologians. Now, we didn't want them to be, you know, disconnected eggheads or what have you. That's right. Um, but we expected them to be learned and, and to study and to be students of the deep things of God. So to the extent that Pursuing a PhD allows you to do that. My pastor is also a PhD student here at Midwestern. Um, for him, the way he's answered the question is that the disciplines that PhD study um, sort of reinforce for him, right? I mean, you just talk about how hard it is, right? right? But the ability to go deep over a long period of time, um, to you know, the perseverance there, the endurance there, not just the depth of knowledge, but just the disciplines of writing and what have you. Um, he does draw a connection between that and his ability to pastor well. Um, so like you, I would say the answer is maybe, but, but probably more pastors should consider it yeah, um, absolutely. Than, than currently do. All right, let's finish with this. This is another social media scrum. By the time uh, this may be a tempest in a teapot, I don't know. <laughs> um, it's fresh on my mind because on the day of our recording, this is only like two days on from when people kind of blew up um, over these tweets. By the time you hear this, uh, dear listener, uh, you may have no idea what we're talking about. But you, you feel free to look it up. The issues, I think, are very important, which is, um, to me, it's it's another step in progression of the liberalizing of um, – I don't want to say evangelical theology because I just think it, it's barely evangelical, some of the things that are, are said. But in the so-called progressive evangelicalism uh, tribe or what have you. So – Recently, Diana Butler Bass, who's a, a PhD from Duke, um, independent scholar, her bio says. I, I think that just means she's not teaching anywhere full time, uh, but she's taught at Westmont and other places like that. Um, a scholar, uh, speaker, author. She has numerous books out, that sort of thing. Um, she composed a tweet thread um, arguing the beginning 
um, about the establishment by Pope Pius of Christ the King uh, Sunday, the church calendar, which if that's all it was, um, you know, I disagree that this day should be designated Christ the King. It's a night, you know, it's from the early 20th century. Like, okay, who cares, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's some Baptists who are following the church calendar, um, probably more than we realize, um, but I, I really don't care if that's your beef. But that wasn't the beef, it didn't seem to me. Um, as you progress through the thread, it, get, it gets worse in, in, in my mind. Um, really, what she began to argue against substantively is the notion of Christ as what I would call a hierarchical king. Mm-hmm. That Christ is upending in his kingdom, upending the whole idea of a pyramid with anyone at the top, including himself, right? So, Ronnie, help me out here. What are we to make of this latest um, theological development in progressive evangelicalism? And I don't want to cast her tweet thread as indicative of like everybody in the movement or what have you. Yeah. Uh, but there was a lot of response, a lot of favorable response from the tribe. I mean, it's like it went viral for the you know day or two that it was out there. Not just people arguing against it, but people kind of amending it. And to me, it came about three or four days after Rachel Held Evans um, mm-hmm. tweeted something about um, the the, uh, the Canaanite woman um, who pushed back on Jesus calling her a dog. Uh, that Jesus is like changing his mind on racial bias, that he's racially biased and the woman taught him something and and what have you. And so two days later we have this and it just seems like, man, how, is there – well, help me sort through, right? Because yeah. people talk about the dual nature of Christ and what have you. Um, I'm not sure that's actually what we're dealing with here. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think to even further the problem, you couple those things with – you know, the state of theology study that Ligonier came out with uh, pretty pretty recently from the time of this recording that, you know, something like 70-plus percent of evangelicals agreed or affirmed the statement that Christ is the, the greatest, the first and greatest created being. What you have here yeah. is just an evangelical mess of Christology. And yeah. I, I've argued before that I do think within evangelicalism, uh, the Lord has been kind to us in allowing us to to kind of sort out much of our theology, and we're, we're pretty resolved in some of the things that we hold to. However, I fear that Christology is severely lacking in the evangelical church, and honestly, um, Trinitarianism is, is is as well. And I was actually having a conversation with, with one of our professors here at Midwestern, Dr. Matthew Barrett, about this not too long ago, and we were talking about this being a consequence of a neglect of church history. And what I mean by that is this. Really, it seems like God has been protecting his church from false teachings in every era, every generation. Uh, he's, he's been kind to protect us towards right and orthodox doctrine. And we, we can see that in waves and eras throughout church history. So, for instance, evangelicals largely have what they believe about soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. We kind of have that somewhat settled because we're very familiar with the Reformers. Yeah. Uh, so Luther very much taught us our doctrine of justification. Calvin, Knox, they very much taught us our doctrine of justification, as, as well as the doctrine of the Scripture. So we have theologians like who, who – the old Princeton theologians, B.B. Warfield, J. Gresham Machen, uh, theologians like C.F. Henry, who largely taught us as evangelicals what to believe about the Bible, and we read those figures. However – a major neglected area of church history, especially in terms of evangelicalism, is evangelicals by and large don't read the patristics. We yeah. don't read the early church. 
And whereas justification soteriology was it was kind of dealt with in the Reformation, bibliology or doctrine of the Bible, doctrine of Scripture was dealt with in the modern era. Christology was largely dealt with in the early church. And so while we get our justification from Luther and our uh, doctrine of Scripture from Warfield, we should be getting our doctrine of Christ from Athanasius, mm. yet evangelicals aren't reading him. Yeah. And I think the same could be said in terms of Trinitarianism and the doctrine of God as we move forward into medieval theology with theologians like Thomas Aquinas and uh, who, who are very helpful in thinking through the doctrine of God. So I think this is a, this is a problem. This is this is a evangelical problem in terms of theology. It's it's the reason that I've decided to write my dissertation on Christology and union with Christ and hmm. kind of what that means, who he is, what he's up to. Um, but you're right. This this is another example of of Christology going by the wayside. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to share some choice quotes from the thread, lest anyone think you know we're sort of uh, exaggerating what was said here. These are direct quotes from her tweets. Uh, one thing that um, Dr. Bass said is Jesus' kingship wouldn't be over anything. It would be among us, within us, mm-hmm. with us. Um, I would agree with the latter statement. I don't know why we have set, you know, set that in opposition to the idea of being over anything, um, but she has done that. Uh, she also says Jesus reserves everything, taking down the idea of hierarchical rule forever. Um, she also uh, wrote in the tweet thread, he did not set up a new hierarchy in which he would replace Caesar, a new pyramid with him, the top guy. And then she said, this dominion, a dominion of the table of hospitality and gratitude is something we do with God. We aren't its subjects. We are its co-creators, which that just kind of made the hair on the back of my neck stand up a little bit, <laughs> that even a co-creator with God. I suppose there's a way you could uh, nuance that, which might be appropriate. But just the trajectory of the language all through, um, for the idea that he isn't over I- I- anything, right? Paul writing in Ephesians chapter 1, God placed all things under his feet. That's right. Sounds like a pyramid with him at the top. <laughs> I don't know. He appointed him to be over everything for the church and then to double down on 1 Corinthians 15, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. So um, the, the only you know person not under Christ or would be the other two persons of the Trinity. So – Mm. Um, and I think, you know, as other people pointed out in, in response, um, numerous passages in Hebrews, um, uh, Colossians chapter 1, lots throughout. I mean, just the idea that his kingship and um, his enthronement is a modern idea created mm. by Pope Pius in the 1920-something. Uh, it just seemed really crazy to me. I don't want to be, um, you know, too critical or, or negative or insulting or what have you. But it just seemed an odd idea, and the fact that so many people said um, that they liked it and agreed with it, it, it made me a little um, nervous. So mm-hmm. um, in, in my response or my initial response, uh, it, it seems on this kind of downward trajectory, and I know the slippery slope can be um, you know, a logical fallacy or what have you, but to go from – over the last several years – I know this is new. It's not like these people have created these errors. They've That's just right. been with the church you know, since forever. But um, the last several years, the de- the denial or the criticism of penal substitution mm-hmm. that – you know, so the first thing we do is we, we kind of 
erode at the ideal of Christ's propitiation, that he's not satisfying the wrath of God or anything like that. Now the impeccability, you know, he's repenting of racial bias. He's learning things and um, has like, you know, whiffs of adoptionism in it and that sort of thing. Um, Now he's not a hierarchical king. He's just like one of us, you know, uh, uh, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way (laughs) home or whatever it is. And I wonder what the next step is. And my my theory is it'll be resurrection, that we're denying the bodily resurrection, which, I mean, you already see – uh, favored scholars among this tribe who say the you know the resurrection is metaphorical. Marcus Borg would be mm-hmm. uh, one of the leading voices there. But I even saw because people thought I was being uncharitable to make that assumption. But in the tweet thread, one person who um, was affirming or amening what Dr. Bass was saying favorably quoted um, uh, John Crossan, mm. who among many famous things has said Jesus didn't rise again, his body was taken from the cross and thrown onto the garbage heap where it was eaten by dogs. So mm-hmm. there's at least someone who doesn't believe the resurrection who thinks this whole idea of Christ not being enthroned um, sounds good and sounds like good news. Yeah, and it, it, another problem that I had with the, the tweet thread, and, and, and Jared, I think you're right. I don't think this is overreacting because I think we're seeing repetition of history. Like I said, uh, the doctrine of Christ has been treaded on uh, so many times, over and over again, and uh, this is just another expression of that. And I think you're right to say that there, there have been false dichotomies in this thread. The one that jumped out to me was the false dichotomy of he's not his, his rule isn't over anything; it's yeah. among us. And I think that is exactly exactly that. It's a false dichotomy, and one that if we keep together, actually illuminates the the glory and the beauty of the gospel. Because the gospel isn't that Christ stopped being a king so he could be one of us. The gospel is that the king came to us. He saw our helpless estate. The king of the cosmos saw our helpless estate and he decided to do something about it. And she's she's right in pointing to Christ's communion amongst us. But that doesn't mean he has to forfeit his his kingly rule over the cosmos indeed – as Abraham Kuyper famously says, there's not a square inch of the cosmos over which Christ doesn't cry out, mine. Uh, he is the king, and the king has ransomed his people. And that's exactly what makes the gospel glorious when we realize what Jesus deserved for his righteousness compared to what we deserved for our sin and the fact that he took it on as king um, is, is tremendously glorious. That's great. All right, let me end with this. Um, just as a biblical response to the idea that we are not subjects of Christ's kingdom, um, this is Paul writing in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Hmm. Thanks for listening to this episode of the For the Church podcast. Uh, If you have questions you'd like us to cover, um, please submit those on social media using the hashtag FTC mailbag. Of course, you can always email me if you can find my email address, uh, but it's out there. Uh, But use on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Uh, underneath one of the mailbag posts. You can leave your questions there or just use the hashtag FTC mailbag. 
As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please recommend us to your friends. Give us a good review on iTunes. We'll see you online. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.